Um, very thankful to have the privilege of being back. I've been away uh, a couple weeks ago. I was away for uh, a week of study in solitude that our elders grant me um, in the mountains. And then last weekend I was here but had spoken at our men's retreat. And uh, while I was gone, I was very thankful for uh, Noah Joyner's message that he brought to us and, and Justin Perry. Very encouraged at uh, our young leader's faithfulness to the scriptures and capability in teaching us. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And I, I feel so appreciated by our congregation and welcome. You want to know why? Let me tell you why. This is so, you have no idea what this does for a pastor's heart. While I was gone, someone cut the cord, the electrical cord to the clock that sits up here. And now I'm free. I can just go on and on. And, and the first service I actually did because I didn't realize the clock was gone. Somebody, yeah. So to whoever did that, your, your ministry to me is much appreciated. And yes, I will go buy one this week. So. But the men's retreat was outstanding. If you were, um, if you were one of our men and could not make it, I, I just encourage you next year not to miss that day and a half. Uh, God does amazing things in our lives in that short time period. Our hope is that this week we can get past a little technological embargo that's going on and uh, those messages will be available online for anyone, regardless of gender, to listen to. There are two talks that God used greatly, uh, very simple talks, but he used those greatly in our lives this weekend. And um, so I'd encourage you to look those up. And I would encourage you next year, guys, make sure that you do not miss the men's retreat because there are certain dimensions of the retreat we do not record. Uh, Q&A with the elders, for instance, does not get recorded it contains stuff that ought not be propagated on the internet. So if you want to know the real skinny on what's going on, you have to show up at the retreat or ask some of the guys what went on. But we had a fantastic time there. One of the things that we discussed is the reason that we need to pray is because our sin is far worse than we think it is. And that that should cause us to be men who are drawn to confession and repentance in our prayer life for the simple reason that sin wreaks havoc on relationships. Just a little bit of sin will mess things up, turn things inside out, upside down. I come home from work on Friday and we are getting ready to go to an away football game, Friday night lights and all that. We're, we're going, it's about an hour drive away so our time is a little tight coming home and I get home and I realize we are running late. And so evidently this has a greater impact upon me than I realize and it affects uh, the way that I articulate a question so that it is perceived as an accusation. And uh, it, was a, it was such a small sin, I didn't even know it was a sin until on later reflection. But that transformed the conversation that followed. I mean, the whole tone was just, you know, different, if you know what I mean. Um, one, little, one little phrase was all that it took. Because sin wreaks havoc on our relationships, and it's transforming in a destructive way on our communication. And so, as, as men this past week, we, we just thought together about what this means about our relationship with God. What does sin do to prayer? 
and we looked at some of the more terrifying verses in the Old Testament on this matter. Isaiah says um, to God's people when they're embroiled in sin, when you spread out your hands in prayer, God says, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. And again, in the book of Proverbs, they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, that is, they were a disobedient people, since they would not accept my advice, spurned my rebuke, they'll eat the fruit of their ways, be filled with the fruit of their schemes. Later in Proverbs, if anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, if anyone's disobedient, even his prayers are detestable. How about that? A new category for prayer, detestable prayers. Zechariah says one of the more powerful ones. God is speaking here. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. And Ezekiel says, in reflecting on the idolatry of God's people, God says through Ezekiel, Therefore I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Sin wreaks havoc on our relationship with God in prayer. The Bible teaches us. You could say it this way. As your repentance goes, so goes your prayer life. Got a pet sin you're coddling? You're protecting, you're shielding, you're not dealing with the way you ought to? Friends, the price of that sin is prayer. According to God. And this is exactly where we find ourselves in the book of 2 Samuel uh, today in chapter 21. It's a place where God will not listen to the prayers of his own people because of sin. And if you would like to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 21, I would like to pray for our time as we look at that section together. God, we are so easily deceived about our own goodness and about the insignificance of sin that is just having consequences beyond our ability to see. Help us see today, God. Help us be free today, Father, from that which ensnares us and harms those we love especially you. So may your word have its full effect by your spirit and even by my proclamation, we pray. Amen. Okay, we're nearing the end of 2 Samuel. These last remaining chapters from here on out are kind of an odd assortment of things that the writer has put together from different eras in um, David's life. Um, Today we are going to cover about half a chapter is all. I want to slow us down uh, today. I know Justin last week had to go through two chapters. Today I'm going to go through about half a chapter. Someone asked me how could that be. It is simply the uh, sovereign luck of the draw. No punishment on Justin for any good reason. But this comes from an earlier time in David's life. 
though we are near the end of his life, the reflection today is on an earlier time. In verse 1 of chapter 21, during the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. Famines in, almost always, and in this day, were precipitated by drought, in all likelihood. And right now, we are in one of the most severe droughts in our region's history, uh, recent history. When I was up in the mountains a couple weeks ago, I was talking with some of the people who live up there, and uh, they were 15 inches of rain behind this year, and people's wells are drying up. Uh, subdivision near that area, they're trucking water in for the people. And this is just, honestly, historically, a very small drought. Imagine if this went on not for one year, but for, not for two years, but for three years, what we're in right now went on. And imagine there were no trucks. There was no way to seed clouds or alternative irrigation methods or anything like that. In, in David's day, a three-year famine means people, if they're not already, they're on the verge of starvation. They're about to die. And how the children must be suffering. And so, this is what we love about David. He sought the face of the Lord. There's no record of him digging more wells. There's no record of him uh, contemplating, you know, trying to dig a channel to bring water in from somewhere. It just says David sought the Lord. This is why we're studying the, the books of Samuel. So that from David's example, we would learn what it means to be someone who seeks God wholeheartedly. And that means when you're in a hard place, you seek God. And David does. And As we should expect, God honors David's seeking and reveals the cause of the famine. He says, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. So God honors David's seeking, is what I want you to see at that point. And that shouldn't surprise us. The scripture is full of these kinds of huge promises. If my people, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and I'll heal their land, God says. Over and over again, seek me, find me. That's God's promise. And so David seeks God and God says, here's the answer to your question. It's because of Saul and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. Then in verse 2, the king David summoned the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. Okay, Um, long time ago, at least uh, 400 years before this time, God's people entered the promised land. And when they got to the the promised land, uh, they had instructions from God to wipe out the inhabitants who were an idolatrous people and an offense to God. They were to wipe them out and inhabit the land. So they conquered Jericho. They conquered a second city called Ai. The next city that's in line to be conquered is a city called Gibeon, hence the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites evidently saw what was coming and recognized that, in fact, their land had been promised to God's people and knew they had no chance, even though they were great warriors. So rather than fight, 
they sent a, a representative group to God's people, to the Israelites as they entered the land. And these people didn't just show up. They dressed in rags and they packed moldy bread and they pretended to be from a distant land. And by their deception, they struck a deal with God's people under Joshua's leadership um, that there would be peace between them and they would not harm them. Well, later on, God's people realized not too long after that that it was the Gibeonites who were just down the road, not people from some distant land. They wanted to kill them, but they couldn't because of their oath. They took an oath before the Lord. They would not harm the Gibeonites. In fact, the Gibeonites came under their servitude as a result of that, and they served God's people as servants. And they also came under their protection. If you remember, Joshua fought this tremendous battle one day, and the sun actually stood still in the sky. You may remember that amazing miracle. That was in order to save the Gibeonites that day. So for 400 years, they have been servants to Israel, and they've been under um, their protection. But Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, tried to annihilate them. So we have this 400-year oath that was based on a deception that now has been violated with good motives. Saul didn't do it for selfish reasons. He did it in his zeal for God's people. But it resulted in three years of famine. One of the things that I take away from that is simply this. It matters to God if you keep your word or not. A lot it matters to God. If a 400-year oath that we would likely have forgotten about based on a deceptive, questionable practice and then is uh, violated by Saul with good intentions leads to this kind of three-year judgment on God's people, it matters a lot whether or not we keep our sacred vows. Of course, one of those sacred vows that comes to mind is is our, our marriage vows. But all vows, all promises, our word matters. Numbers 30 puts it this way. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word. He must do everything he said. Everything. No matter how difficult it is. This is so different than our age. And I I like to, just by contrast, I would like to quote uh, that great theologian, Rod Stewart who after years of intensive study and rock and roll has come to this conclusion. He says, I think marriage vows should be changed, he says, because they've been in existence for for like 600 years, he says. (laughs) When people used to live until they were, you know, 35 or so. He said, so they only had to be with each other for about 12 years. Rod's been thinking about this a lot, you can tell. And then they would die anyway. But now, he says, it's a big commitment because you're going to be with someone for 50 years. He says, it's impossible. The vows should be written like a dog's license that has to be renewed every year. And even though it sounds absurd coming from his lips, that's the world, that's the way our culture thinks about one of the most sacred vows a couple can enter into. That it ought to be renewed yearly like a dog's license because it's impossible to keep it for a lifetime. God thinks differently 
about your giving your word. Especially in the big things, but not only in them. And I ran across this really mundane, incredibly troubling story. So I thought, why should I be the only one troubled by this story? So I'm going to share it with you. It comes from a guy named um, Mark Mooring, who of course is the editor of Men of Integrity magazine, so be forewarned. He says, uh, it was late, and my young sons, Peter and Paul, had been in bed for at least an hour. My wife and I had just returned from our Bible study group, and I snuck in the boys' room to say goodnight. Dad, can I have some ice cream? No, Peter, it's late. It's way past bedtime. And the kid's in bed. You know, who's going to give their kid ice cream in bed? But Dad, you promised. He was right. Mark says, Peter had asked for ice cream earlier in the day, but we didn't have any, and I said, I'll get some for you later, I promise. Dinner came and went. We cleaned up the kitchen. The boys picked up their toys. The sitter arrived. My wife and I left for Bible study. I'd forgotten all about the ice cream, but Peter hadn't. So, he says, even though it was 10 o'clock, I hopped in the car, drove to the convenience store, got a half gallon, hurried home. Peter and I enjoyed that chocolate vanilla swirl together. After all, he said, I had a promise to keep. And the indication from the scripture is is that God expects that level of promise keeping from us. Not only in the great sacred oaths of our lives, but in the daily mundane commitments we make to our children, in the office, at school. So how good's your word? How are you at keeping your promises? This, this text that we're looking at today should make you, amongst many things, very uneasy about going back on your word. About not following through on what you said you would do. Whether it's in your marriage or, or in your work or in your relationship with God. The expectation is that we would honor our word. Back in our story, David asks then these Gibeonites, he calls the remaining Gibeonites to him that Saul had not been able to wipe out, and he says, what shall I do for you? How shall I make amends? Some of your Bibles say make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance. And everything's all twisted up here. This is, everything's backwards and not the way it ought to be. You remember when God... First called his people out. He got Abraham there and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to bless you. Why? To be a blessing to the nations. And so sin gets in the camp and now it's all twisted around and now we find that, that, that God's people in the form of their king are going to the nations, to the non-Israelites and saying, what do we have to do for you to bless us? And that's what sin does. It just twists everything around, turns it upside down and inside out. And that's what's happening in our story. Well, the Gibeonites answer him, we've got no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone to death in Israel to death. I mean, they're just saying, look, we're servants. We don't have any rights for this kind of stuff. But David says, no, no, no. What do you want me to do for you? It's not about what you have rights to do or power to do. It's about me making right a horrible wrong that's been done to you. 
So to straighten out the fallout from the sin that was plaguing God's people, David seeks God. But he doesn't just seek God. He seeks God so he can act on what God tells him. And he presses these Gibeonites for an answer twice so that he can make things right because this is the expectation of God for his people. Book of Numbers, for instance, say to the Israelites, God says, when a man or a woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, there's a fascinating connection there. Wrong someone else, you're unfaithful to the Lord. We'll talk more about that. That person's guilty, must confess the sin he's committed. Then he must make full restitution for his wrong. Add one-fifth to it and give it all to the person that he's wrong. The expectation is, of God is that when we commit a wrong against someone, uh, we'll do what we need to do to make it right. And then some. It's in our power to do it. Well, back in verse 5, the Gibeonites answer David's question. As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, they're talking about Saul who tried to wipe him out. They say, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. Seven descendants, part of Saul's bloody household, as they said. Perhaps these were, these were men, these seven were men who participated in the slaughter. We, we don't know. But there's seven of them, symbolic of completing the act of making it right at that point in time. They were to be exposed or hung before the Lord, it says. Because it's not just about um, vengeance on the Gibeonites' part. Indeed, they're seeing this as something that's to be done before the Lord. It's more than just making it right with them, though it is making it right with them. That somewhere in the backdrop for this thing is making it right with God. See, behind every wrong against someone lies a wrong against God, as, as we already alluded to. This passage we just read in Numbers, it says, Say to the Israelites, when a man or a woman wrongs another, another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person's guilty, must confess the sin he's committed, he must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he's wronged. But, the next verse says, if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong... The restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest along with the ram with which atonement is made for him. See, behind every sin against somebody stands a sin against God, ultimately. This is why David would say when he so deeply wronged Bathsheba and Uriah, he says to God, God, I've sinned against you and you only. So you wrong your spouse. It's bigger than that. You're on your kids. It's way bigger than that. Somebody at work, somebody in this room. It's way bigger than that because behind every relational wrong stands a wrong against God. 
In verse 7 of our story, the king does what's asked of him. He's going to make it right. But it says he spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. Okay. So he has, to, he has to give seven descendants of Saul over to the Gibeonites so that they can be essentially have capital punishment exercised on them because of what Saul's household did. But he excludes Mephibosheth from the seven because of an oath. And there's a vivid contrast here. David had made an oath to Jonathan where he said, I will not wipe out your descendants. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. So David is an oath keeper. Saul is an oath breaker. Saul's a covenant breaker. David's a covenant keeper here. Saul, you know, violates the covenant and God's people are punished for three years. God will not hear their prayers. David keeps the covenant here and God, will find out at the end of our story, will hear their prayer again. So there's a vivid contrast in our story. Mephibosheth is saved, but the king took Armani and another man named Mephibosheth a popular name in those days, um, the two sons of A's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Mehalothite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest just as the barley harvest was beginning. And surely our sin is much worse than we think it is. And the expectation of God is that we would keep our covenants. We will keep our word. The Bible says it over and over again. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Ecclesiastes says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. A fool is someone who makes a vow and doesn't fulfill it. He says, don't let your mouth... It's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. And don't protest to the temple messenger, uh, my vow was a mistake. Didn't mean to say that. Sorry about that. It's just a joke. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? So Saul's well-intentioned act of disobedience of a 400-year-old covenant based on a deception has led to all of this. A group of people are nearly wiped out and annihilated because of it. How many innocent people in Gibeon died because of this? And a famine strikes God's people for three years. How many more lives? How much suffering went on? And God will not hear their prayers now. And so seven more men have to die. All because of Saul's well-intentioned act of disobedience to a 400-year-old vow based on a deception. Until David makes it right, God will not hear their prayers for the land. And so the famine continues for three long, suffering-filled years. And nobody knew why. They're walking around for three years, scanning the horizon, looking for a rain cloud. It's not happening. 
They're walking out into dry, parched fields that aren't producing. And nobody knows why. One man's well-intentioned sin and that of his household has led to all of this. And so again, it makes us wonder, what are the consequences of those secret little sins, those acts of disobedience that nobody knows about in my life? Where's this leading? What's God going to have to do for me to break free from this? What kind of devastation is coming into my home, into this church, into this community because of my sin? The shrapnel from the sin of Saul is scary to me. And the question that's really pushing us this morning is, will you do whatever God asks you to do to make it right? Would you do whatever he asks you to do to make it right? David says yes. But he senses then that there's even more to be made right. Down in verse 10, Rizpah, she's the mother of two of the men who were put to death. The daughter of Ai took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. Sackcloth is a symbol of mourning. So she's out there in the midst of the bodies of her sons with sackcloth on a rock. And it says, from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. It's a, just a phenomenal demonstration of the anguish of a mother and her devotion to her son. She's out there, the birds come down on the rotting carcasses of her son who have not been given a proper burial and she chases them off. And she sleeps out there on that rock, on that sackcloth. Day and night she's out there. The animals come up, she runs them off. And it's not only an expression of grief and devotion, but it's also a demonstration of faith. See, to expose the bodies like that without proper burial was often a symbol of someone who had come under the curse of God and their bodies were just left out to be eaten by the birds and the animals. And she was not going to let that be the legacy of her son's life. She would stay out there and chase the animals away and she would stay there until it rained. Until it became apparent to her and to everyone that her son's death had not been for naught but that by their death, the mercy of God had returned to his people. And this great act of grief and devotion and faith in awaiting God's mercy upon the land um, stimulates David to act accordingly. When David was told that Ai's daughter, Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul, King Saul, and his son, Jonathan, from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. Now they had taken the bones of those two guys secretly from the public square at Bethshan where the Philistines had hung them before they struck down Saul on Gilboa. So when Saul and Jonathan had died in battle, the Philistines had hung their bodies up on the wall of their city and the people of Jabesh-Gilead had snuck in, stolen their bodies and given them the best burial they could. But David now goes and brings the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there. 
and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed, these seven men were gathered up. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of his Saul's father, Kish, at Zela and Benjamin, and did everything the king had commanded. So they give them a right and honorable burial. It's this one last great tribute of David, respect for Saul and honoring his friendship with Jonathan. And then it says, after that, after that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. And the rains came. And the famine ended. The mercy of God has come to his people because they have repented of their sin and made things right. It's interesting. Verse I quoted to you earlier, there's a verse prior to it. This comes later, and this, what happened in this story becomes the legacy that God passes on to the next generation. It says, he says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, it's exactly the situation we're talking about, or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, all of which would result in a famine, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is exactly what God has done. And it's exactly the invitation that God gives to us this morning um, to deal well with our sin. Um, Because here we are, it's a whole room full of people with a whole life full of broken promises, of breaches of integrity, of word given and then taken back, promises made in families and in business deals and, and to God himself that we didn't follow through on. Broken marriage vows and promises to husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and to Jesus himself. And this morning at the table, there's an invitation to come and in worship to God to commit to make it right. And a very specific example of this in the New Testament is that before we even come to the table, we would commit, if we've wronged someone and it's alienated our relationship, we commit to be restored to them before we even came to the table. So this morning, there's an invitation before you come to the table to make a covenant with God, a commitment to God that you're going to make it right. You're going to be restored. You're going to work it out. You're going to confess your sin and say you're sorry and seek forgiveness. It's a commitment like David to make things right. But there's a, a, bigger, a bigger burden and a bigger question that weighs this morning as we think about this. And that's, what about making things right with God? How does that happen? How do we take care of what's happened between us and God? And the great drama of the Bible is that we wrong God and then we are incapable of paying for our own sin. Unless we want to pay for it for all eternity in a place the Bible calls hell, we can't self-atone. We can't pay for our own sin. There's no way we can earn our way back into God's good graces. And that's the other beautiful imagery of the table this morning. Someone has done it for us. Someone has borne all the broken promises and all the half-truths and the outright lies 
He has borne them on the cross. He took those and he paid the penalty. When Christ was ripped apart from the Father and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was our sin that held him there. Just like we sang earlier. That was our sin. And so this morning we come to the table to worship, to bow down and worship the God who is so kind and so loving that he would bear our sin for us when a broken promise has so grieved him and wronged him and dishonored him. He still was willing to sacrifice his son so that we could have our way back, so that Jesus could make atonement for our sins. He could bring us and make us one with the Father again. And so the worship team is going to come now. They're going to lead us in a time of meditation and preparation for the table. But if you're here this morning and you've never entrusted your sins, your broken promises to Christ that his death on the cross might pay for them fully, then the table's an invitation to you to trust Christ and his work, not your own. And for those of us who are followers, we come today committed um, as it says in Hebrews um, chapter 9, it says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And so we come to the table in thankful worship for what Christ has done for us and committing to serve Him new and afresh. Would you stand and we'll worship God as we prepare and then I'll lead us in the table after this song. <laughs>